I just love people. I almost, you know, I think that people are so have so much potential. Everybody I meet, I have an insatiable curiosity about them. This is a new angle, and I'm your host, Justin Angle, marketing professor at the University of Montana. This podcast is my chance to speak with cool people doing awesome things in and around the great state of Montana. We are proudly underwritten by First Security Bank and Blackfoot Communications. Hey, folks, welcome back, and thanks for tuning in this week. Today, we bring you my conversation with Sheila Stearns. Sheila's pretty much a legend in Montana. Her list of important and difficult jobs in service of higher education is unparalleled, including being our state's longest-serving commissioner of higher education, the interim chancellor at MSU Billings, president of Wayne State College in Nebraska, and provost and chancellor of UM Western. Sheila has an interesting conception of retirement, meaning that since retiring, she's served as the interim president here at the University of Montana uh, during what many would probably agree was a pretty difficult time for the university. And now she's taken on the chair position of the commission to redraw Montana's congressional districts. Another pretty tough job. Sheila is an inspiration, and I really enjoyed learning more about her approach to decision-making, leadership, and service. I'm excited for you to learn more about her right now. Okay, so we're here today with Sheila Stearns. Sheila, thanks for coming on the podcast. You're welcome. Thank you. So I got to start with this. You have a particularly strange uh, view of retirement. <laughs> you know, my, my sort of uh, first touch point with you is when you came out of retirement to serve as interim president here at the University of Montana. And now you have another position that seems like a, a particularly difficult uh, job for somebody, quote unquote, in retirement. That is a fair way to look at it. I don't. I try not to look at it that way. But I have taken, I was also interim chancellor of MSU right. Billings in 2014. So I have, and I've done more consulting actually after I retired than I had any idea that I would. I was, the Association of Governing Boards reached out to me. So that is a fair observation. Um, but it's, some people say that, you know, what, what would you do when you retire? And the funny thing about me is that never worried me for one second. Interesting. If, if nobody, if I had never had any other assignment, I have and would have had plenty to do, things I want to write mm-hmm. and to read and to visit. And so for someone who wanted to retire conventionally, right. it's kind of odd that I have been had a episodic retirement. Yeah, and I, I wonder, like, how many of these positions have been, I mean, you ultimately have made, have had the choice to say yes or not. These are particularly challenging positions. I mean, I don't know too much the circumstance. Uh, the, the stint at MSUB was shorter than right. it was here, Correct. and the University of Montana here in Missoula was in a bit of a crisis. When it was we, longer than I expected. Yeah. So, you know, have you made choices about what to say yes to? Justin, one thing I have found about myself, I'm not sure I ever would have known it ahead of time, is when I'm asked, even if it was nowhere in my crystal ball, I don't linger too long. If it feels right, I know it within a few hours. Okay. I I replay it in my mind and, of course, visit with my husband and think about it. But I usually almost within... The first thirty seconds, no. Really, that's fast. Oh, very fast huh. in that respect for me. I know that if just a couple questions are answered, then I will, 
I'll probably say yes, and how odd, considering all the other things I'm going to do. But I think, to pin it down, if, if it really feels important to me, and that the request was expressed in a way that my particular set of whatever skills, talents, experience seemed like it would be a good fit, and I can't argue with that, no matter how internally humble I'm trying to be, sure. then I'll say yes. Okay. Okay. So let's talk about this current job. Okay. This current retirement job. I don't even know how to service. It's service, really. It's service. I mean, we should it's call it that. It's public service. It really is. So you were appointed to chair the committee that's tasked with uh, redrawing legislative districts here in the state of Montana, using the data from twenty the 2020 census. Correct. The Well, the backstory here is pretty interesting, right? The committee was four people deadlocked, two Republicans, two Democrats. And and again, like here you are chosen to really take on a seemingly intractable intractable problem. How did that come to happen? Well, I think probably because of having served as commissioner of higher education Mm -hmm. and as the interim president of the university, my name is known to leaders in the state. So even though the commission, the four already appointed, did ask for applicants. And I I think at some point I knew that. It would not have crossed my mind at all. Right. As I say, my place So this fall. this type of service wasn't on your radar screen not at, at all? all. Okay. Not at all. I, Are you particularly politically active? I mean, maybe that's not politi- why you might have been a choice. Cause you're right. Not- well, I think that, that I, I must have made the Supreme Courts, you know, or at least the Chief Justice's short yeah. list of people who are known to be leaders in the state but not because they've been politically active. Sure. I would probably, if he was making, and he had to have been making that list, as he must have had to do 10 years ago and and his predecessor 20 years ago and so forth. Um, so I imagine that's how my name got on the sure. list. It's not that I'm politically unaware. You know, I've certainly um, had to work with legislators and, and right. governors very aware and supportive of good what I believe to be good policy leaders on whatever side of an issue, Republican, Democrat, or independent. So how it came about is I think that it devolved to the Supreme Court again. You know, Montana has this nineteen seventy two constitution, mm-hmm. which is pretty dang interesting and pretty young. It, and it's really young as constitutions go. And that's another tangent we can go down because the role of women, I believe, in helping Montana get a new constitution in 1972 is pretty key and interesting. Well, so let's, we, let's talk about that. I don't know the history. Well, it it really springs out of real active work by the League of Women Voters, okay. which, as a lot of people know or listeners would know, is a nonpartisan group. Mm-hmm. And their particular initiative, as I understand it, and I'm not any great historian on this subject, but I was talking about it with a friend the other day. It, in the 1960s, was Montana's really clunky constitution that was maybe and nearly 100 years old, maybe not quite then, but it was not suitable. Right. And they made it in the way that women particularly often do, groups with, that have more lots of women in them, especially community women leaders. And people like Dorothy Eck from Bozeman uh, sort of led the charge. And when Betty Babcock, she was 
recently when she died, she, she never held public office, but she laid in state in the Capitol. That's how much respect people had for her. Okay. And she heard about it, and she was married to the Republican um, former governor, Tim Babcock, and one of the more respected, admired Republican women in the state. And she heard about the effort also in the 60s, and and maybe Dorothy Eck in Bozeman was the point of the spear. But these two women, one more Democrat, one more Republican, mm-hmm. just led the charge to say, come on, Montanans, we need a out. new constitution. And they... The L- LWV really helped create the snowball that grew into the to the um, actual product of getting a constitutional convention. And so what are some of the attributes of that constitution that you said sort of led to our current system of right. apportionment? Right. Well, they even then, and certainly by now even more so across the country, we know that the most egregious gerrymandering is done— in the 40-plus states that do not have independent commissions. Okay. But they knew that even in the late 60s, early 70s, the staff research. And so when it came to that piece of whatever committee was looking at it, they said the newest, best thing it apparently looks to do for good policy for states is to establish an independent commission. Okay. So my position, you know, I sort of pump myself up here, is actually a a constitutionally appointed created position. And that is to be the chair of a five-member redistricting and apportionment commission, DAC, the Districting and Apportionment Commission. And it created, and that was in that constitution, it's a provision there. So we are staffed by legislative staff, but we are our own thing, just as the Board of Regents was established by the constitution so that it would have some independence from the legislature, which, you know, do lots of things from that I know from my own master's thesis about what happened in the teens and the 20s and the 30s and some of my right. doctoral research as well. Higher education has needed independence, and this constitution created this mm-hmm. this form. And I think they recognized, and, and some states, some new states, California, Arizona, now have nonpartisan or bipartisan commissions. Ours is clearly two Republicans two Democrats. And that's and stipulated in the charter? It is. It, okay. Well, it doesn't use those words. The sure, yeah, what yeah. it does say, I don't think it does, what it does say is that two will be appointed by the majority uh, and leaders of the House and Senate, and two will be appointed by the minority leaders right. of the House and Senate. And then a fifth? That and then the, the fifth. That the four couldn't exactly. agree on, right? So that inevitably makes them partisan. Mm-hmm. They cannot be legislature, legislators, but they have to be undoubtedly well known to the leadership sure. of the legislature. Which I could see that kind of going either way, you know, the legis- whoever, who makes these appointments? Well, in, it, the president of the Senate this year was Fred okay. Thomas okay. from Stevensville, my friend and many years colleague. He appointed, you know, and he just, if somebody might reach out to him or or he may think, oh, yeah, toward the end of the session, this is something I have to do Yep. in any session that ends with nine in this year, nine, the 2019 session. And so he got it done. And then the minority leader in the House probably thought, oh, really? That's something I have to do before this. So he, <laughs> you know, you know, talks around to Democrats and probably and finds somebody that who has some experience or interest or something. So that's how it works. Okay. And so then these four get together 
And they have to decide on a fifth member. Yes. And they couldn't decide, yes. so the Montana Supreme Court appoints you. And that is what the, com- the Constitution uh, stipulates, stipulates that, that okay. if they can't agree, then the Supreme Court will appoint, which it happened 10 years ago. It's, I think it's happened four out of the five times since the 50 years of the new Constitution. Wow. Okay. So, and there was some... There was some banter in the press. I saw one of your colleagues on the commission said, you know, there needs to be a longer public process and the Supreme Court making your appointment maybe shortchanged public input. Um, but at the same time, like, this is an important task that needs to move forward and it was deadlocked. Right. Well, I think that the Supreme Court felt that that period of six weeks, including the commission's four members asking for applicants yeah. and asking for comment, was, I think they assumed I haven't talked to this the chief justice or anyone about it, but I think they assumed that was even more public comment and input than there than there had been in previous times, and and had provided plenty of opportunity. Yeah, sometimes when people say we need more time and more deliberation, that just be, could be frustration with an outcome. I don't. I'm not asking you to make comment comment on that. But anyway, well, so, he said that before I was appointed. Oh, okay. he did not say okay. it. I, that happened to be former Senator Jeff Esmond, right, who's, and right. he did not say that after I was appointed. Okay. He did say, "I think there could have been more comment, but it was in no way personally directed." Interesting how you read these newspaper articles, and they yeah. seem like they're trying to weave a, a bit of a story, perhaps. Yeah. Anyway, so yeah, you're on. So so you were appointed in sort of late spring, early mm-hmm. summer, mm-hmm. and so what's step one? Like, what, what do you do? Step one, because. To this day, over 40 legislatures across the state do this in, with huge partisan, you know, maneuvering. Oh, yeah. You know, as you can just only – and it's reached the Supreme Court this summer, the Wisconsin A and couple North Carolina cases, cases. Yeah. Just huge partisan maneuvering. So the National Council of State Legislatures is the expert nonpartisan resource, and they have five – uh, workshops over a two-year period for legislators, but also for any of us who are from independent commissions to go to their workshops and get Districting 101. So within three weeks, three two members of my, my commission plus me and two of our staff went to the first class, if you will. It was sure. in Providence, Rhode Island, and two day, three days learned a lot wow. about just the vocabulary, how districts yeah. can be packed, how they can be cracked, mm-hmm. how they can Packing be... Packing and cracking, yeah. Yeah, I mean, you know, all the things that can be done by... Uh, and sometimes you simply can't avoid it, but sometimes it can be done to create outcomes that are more advantageous if you're, if the other party is not does not prevail right. or is just not as tuned into. So at least to make all of us really well aware of the strategies and... And what looks to have been, in the last 30, 40 years, best policy for various legislatures or districting commissions to do. So we had a session, several sessions. We practiced, for example, on the Dallas, the city of Dallas for its legislative districts. And we were assigned our roles. It was kind of funny because the role I drew out of a hat was to be the Republican advocate. And someone else drew out uh, from the hat to be the from the good government, like the league or something. Okay. And someone else drew out of the hat to be the person representing the press. And each of us, and we had 10 teams practicing how to redistrict the city of Dallas. Okay. Well, and that's it, fascinating. It was fascinating. It was such good practice for us. Yeah. And be, like so many urban areas. Well, and, it, you're, and you're like, 
it's it's a real case, but it's it one a, that's not you're not personally attached to, but exactly. also you're role playing too. We were role playing, and Texas sent up their data and their computer people, and they they gave us the real deal, yeah. and we practiced, and it was funny because I remember saying to my chair, who was um, who drew out the role of also chief advocate for the Democrats, and I said, how am I going to get more Republicans here? And she looked at me evenly as if this were a real thing and said, knock on doors. Mm. <laughs> we're just, it was, that's was step one, back right. to your question. Right. We learn. And um, one member of our commission has helped with the commission or been on the commission for at least three decades. So oh, wow. he's a real resource So you got deep experience there. We do. And it's, I mean, I don't, I mean, Montana has one congressional district. The stakes are high because we might get a second in 2020. Indeed, indeed. Um, you know, Montana has not been discussed as a particularly gerrymandered state. But at the same time, Montana is a uniquely purple state in a way. It so is. The stakes here have got to be really high, but also it's a really interesting problem or challenge. It is. Our challenge in Montana for the last, well, since the 1990 census caused us to lose our second congressional mm-hmm. seat, um, has been at the House and Senate level, the legislative districts. But this time it looks pretty possible that we may, our first challenge, because literally the, the federal government needs that response. If we get a second district, I think once we are told that and given the data of where our people are mm-hmm. from the census, I think we have something like just 90 days. And wow. that in time for the election for 2022, whereas our other work does not have to be done for the House and local House and Senate seats until the ele- for in time for the election of 2024. Okay. okay. So if we do, if Montana gets a second seat, we will we'll be going right to work. So you must be gaming out those scenarios in advance? I we aren't think. yet, but we will, and we'll invite the public, of course. Sure. And in fact, another, if, you know, it sounds like I'm shilling for the League of Women Voters, but one of their many of their blogs nationally are for for transparency and for um, people to get engaged. You know, hashtag count me in for full complete counts for the census. And Montana's own Department of Commerce hasn't has led and and enabled communities around the state to be very active mm-hmm. in ensuring that your communities are completely counted. Okay. So your your role on the committee was sort of rolled out as the, or, or described by some as you know the tie breaking vote, but to me that that would seem to really diminish one of the reasons that you were appointed, but also probably your view of your role on the commission. Can you talk about that a little bit. I will a little bit. I, undoubtedly, there will be times that I break yeah. ties and and will make one of set of my two commissioners happy and one set of our two commissioners. But for the most part, I see us as a team just looking to make good policy. Now, I don't want to sound like Little Red Riding Hood sure, that doesn't yeah, yeah. know that there are sheeps and wolves and, and uh, strategic intent behind everything we do. And so I need to be aware. But no, I our starting role, I think we all agree, the five of us, is to be supportive to the complete count committees throughout the state we have some visibility that they may not have. So to the extent that we can be on the the um, luncheon circuits and mm-hmm. the, you know, and encourage people to figure out how they can help in their communities to ensure that there's full, complete counts. Okay, so when you say complete count, you mean that the census gets the right I'm number. I'm backing up to the census, yeah, yeah. right. Our real work doesn't begin 
Until after the census is complete. Okay, until you get the numbers. That's right. right. So, But this is what we do in advance as we learn the – we certainly help and give a platform, a bully pulpit, for encouraging um, all the areas of the state that have sometimes, at least from what the U.S. Census c- can tell, have been undercounted, most likely, right. to get that cured. So that we'll do some of that. But then our real work starts – in December of 2020, uh, Census Day is April 1st yeah, of 2020, yeah. and by December, the the uh, U.S. Census Bureau will know the numbers. We will, we probably will know whether officially or not whether we have two seats in Montana mm-hmm. by late December or January of you know 2020 2021, and then we don't get the exact precise numbers that would enable us to to sit down with maps and numbers and would enable the public, by the way, there, you know, there's some real new open software coming out that right. if, if people can, you know, I've, I've met with political scientists like Sarah Renfrey and mm-hmm. others to say, you know, and if classes want to get engaged or Seems even like a great on, yeah, data you, challenge, there are, there are ways it would take some doing to, yeah. Um, to download the data and to draw maps, and we we engage in public comment, and we intend to be transparent, so we will be interested. A new angle is underwritten by First Security Bank and Blackfoot Communications, two cool companies doing awesome things all over Montana. Hi, this is Aspen Runkle. I'm a graduate student at the College of Business and a marketing intern for the podcast, and you're listening to a new angle. That's such a fascinating area of political science now, like all these scoring algorithms that political scientists are coming up with to determine if there's gerrymandering or not. It was interesting in that case, I think from April, I can't remember the name of the case, but, you know, the the Supreme Court seemed a little bit more dismissive of some of that methodology than I thought they should be. I... I don't know. It was late June when they finally came okay. out with the the two decisions, and I don't think that they were necessarily so dismissive of it. Certainly, their um, the appeals courts leading up to them had not been at all right, right. But I think that they thought the complexity is still so interwoven with the sort of the nature. I I don't mean to speak for the Supreme Court. Yeah, I'm not and, asking you to. <laughs> but you know that. Y- each state is going to have to figure it out and fight it through. Yeah. For example, uh, a little book called The Public Mapping Project a few years ago. It just Actually, it's fairly hot off the press, but Philadelphia had um, just a, a woman, a, a civil, I mean, just someone who was interested and out, kind of outraged the way her state was districted by, her le- by the legislature in Pennsylvania. And she got the data best she could and drew yeah, a map, just and a judge picked hers. Interesting. Individuals can get engaged and, and here and there. So it, it's, I think, if I could be wrong, but when, what I heard Justice Roberts say is it, I'm sure he had to hold his nose at some of the way, there's some of the gerrymandering, but he had to say states, p- figure it out or yeah. get your own, I don't right, know. Right, right, not the role of Supreme Court. To, it, to yeah, solve and that I'm, problem. I'm not defending it. Maybe it should have been. Sure. I, you know, I, but it just, I, I have, the more I learn about it, the more sympathetic I am yeah. for a Supreme Court. Not, maybe not to be tied up with that. Maybe your state Supreme Courts. There was a, a case in North Carolina recently, mm-hmm. just recently, where the state Supreme Court said, 
this violates our state right. constitution. Right, and that seems like a pathway to might be a pathway. Maybe uh, hashing some of this stuff out. Could be not necessarily solving it. It seems like right. it's not something you ever solve. And by the way, I certainly, as you can hear me admit, I'm not an expert. Sure, at least yeah, yet. Yeah. I'm I'm getting a lot smarter about it. I mean, so let's talk about that, Sheila. You've you were appointed to this position. You said yes in what thirty seconds, like you said. I didn't say it that fast, but pretty close. Okay, well, pretty maybe close. you had your 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 answer somewhat formulated. Um, late 2017 was it? You were asked to step in. Late or, 16. Late 16 at the University of Montana. Okay. Okay. Um, and another sort of situation where. Out of the blue to me. Out of the blue, but also unclear exactly how to move this institution for. Maybe it was clear to you at the moment, no, but it no, seemed no. unclear to a lot of folks. Um, you know, let's talk about that position as well. Like, what are the attributes and skills you see in yourself that, that you think are some of the reasons why people look to you for these type of leadership roles? By the way, that uh, I didn't anticipate the phone call. Yeah. From the commissioner of higher education at all, at all, any more than I did the phone call from um, Chief Justice McGrath. But as I thought about it, I, I think the, you know, the attribute or attributes, one is just long experience. Yep. I mean, I had a birthday a week or two ago. I'm getting older. And by the time you reach your, you know, you're over 70 and you've been engaged in the arena for several decades as I have, I think. And big, it, difficult jobs yeah, on a variety of no, levels. Yeah. I think I think that's number one. It's just that I've been in the arena, that old. Yeah, I think um, I mean, you might be, I mean, I'm, it's probably tough for you on the spot to be, you know, self-congratulatory. But, you know, <laughs> there's there's there was an argument with our, you know, your successor here at the University of Montana that maybe experience isn't the attribute that we need as an institution. So, you know, experience has value, but it had to be more than just your your depth of well, experience. Well, it's, yes. I mean, I, I, I'll grant you, I, I'll try not to be, you know, totally self-effacing here. I do think um, there are different kinds of experience. Yeah. My experience statewide is is different from, you know, a lot of people mm-hmm. that they might have thought of. Uh, and my depth of experience with the university, going clear back two years as an undergraduate, and I'd say third, people who have worked with me, I believe, think, and I hope correctly, that I'm unflappable. Hmm. You know, I mean, that's a great I, adjective. Yeah, I actually think it's kind of a gift. It's not something that I, I'm not particularly susceptible to stress. Mm-hmm. And at least in the conventional ways, and I'm confident, and I think that probably in that particular case, if Commissioner Christian were unpacking it and he needed to say, I would like someone to go in there who knows higher education, knows Montana, is a level, sort of steady hand, mm-hmm. isn't easily rattled, has self-confidence, and, you know, and has a way, just has a way of helping other people dig into their own self-confidence that may have ebbed, then then Sheila's my person. Okay. So I, I, I would put those five things together. Yeah, I like that, what you just said about helping people dig into their own self-confidence. Yeah. How, do you, how do you conceptualize that? I see that as almost everyone. I just love people. I almost, you know, I think that people are so, have so much potential. Uh-huh. Everybody I meet, 
I have an insatiable curiosity about them because I always think, I just know uh, that they have talent and they have potential, and I'm always kind of curious to know what it is. Well, as I get to know them, then I think I have a way in conversation of helping them see, of feel feel appreciated, sure, and see, oh yeah, I I could do that, or I oh I do do that. Well, let's build on that, or I or if I go do that and I make a mistake, I'm not going to get you know to the woodshed. So I think that's it. Is just I I get a kick out of people. I mean, even that whole year, my early morning. Five minuteers. If our staff, I said, stop by, and the the staff out at the front desk would say, "I thought we're in crisis. Why we heard a lot of laughter in there?" Yeah, because yeah. the point is for people to relax, think about what do we really need to do, and then you kind of rib each other about things, and you just feel more self confident to move on and do what has to be done. It's you know. Sounds like that uh, Lake Wobegon thing. No, I think it makes great sense. You got to sort of, it's it's a serious challenge. Really serious. But you can't. I mean, you have to approach it with a positive attitude, and if you can make working at that challenge fun, all the better. Right, and I'm a big believer in bringing energy. Yeah. Um, I, I'll give a shout out. One of the best people, and I think Seth is, uh, President Bodner is just doing a great job at this as well. Is, um. But um, it's one of the real virtues, I would say, of pre- my colleague and friend, President Cruzado, mm-hmm. uh, who really understands. Who you hired as commissioner, hired. right? I, yeah, I, it was a brilliant hire, if I do say so myself. By the way, of course, I did it with the, um, the chair of my board at the time was Steve Barrett from Bozeman, and the vice chair was Clay Christian. And it was a smart board, and I, yeah. who hired Wad Ed Cruzado, but... You know, to just really recognize there's a spark here, but combined with the other things I mentioned, combined with a confidence yep. and a, um, I don't know, the spark and energy. Yeah. Just let's, you know, let's get the energy flowing again. It's just like any, like you see a slow river or you know what happens because uh, you've had a family person with heart problems lately. Right. If a bloodstream is flowing too slow... Mm-hmm. It's not a good thing. Just get the energy level up and capitalize on it. So I think bringing energy, confidence, some fun into an institution like the University of Montana with its I mean, I played a big part in both the in especially in our centennial back in 1993, but just bring that confidence, energy and pride and really rev it up and you're and some good things are bound to reawaken. It's interesting how, you know, there's there's some structural challenges here. Obviously, they've been dug into. Sure. The morale challenges are deep as well. And to your point of injecting positive energy and purpose and, yeah. you know, ultimately, like, I think I have the best job in the world. Like, I get to help kids that are thinking about how to make their futures better. I mean, what, what right. could be better than that? Right. In a historic, rooted flagship, beautiful yeah. university with history from Jeanette Rankin to Mike Mansfield to people you know, all over the world who, because of their experience here, have changed the world. What could be better? 
Yeah, I can't think of it. Uh, that's me. So, so let's part of my quick yes. Yeah, and pull, pulling the lens back to uh, a Montana University system wide focus. I mean, it is a bit of an interesting time. We have many campuses serving um, a variety of types of students across the state. Um, two flagship institutions. I can't. How many campuses are there? Like twenty-two or something. I mean, it's if you include the tribal colleges, it's, yeah. it's probably at least. So 20. there's a mm-hmm. lot of institutions in the system, right? Yet the number of students graduating from high schools in Montana is about thirty-five hundred a year, mm-hmm. and it doesn't. Uh, it might grow a little bit, but twenty twenty-six, it's looking to decline quite a bit, and so that seems like a small number of students to fill a lot of seats. Uh-huh. Um, I don't know if these di- these dynamics must have been on your radar screen in your time as commissioner, but how do they you were. sort of think about how best do we serve our state's population and what should what should that look like? Our belief, the board's and mine, was always through uh, partnerships. In other okay. words, it does not help. I mean, actually, through the decade in which I was uh, that I was commissioner, through no, I mean, frankly, through the the good uh, child rearing, uh, child uh, birth rates right, from right. 15 years earlier, 20 years earlier, we had growing numbers. Yeah, rising tide. Rising tide. And I do think that that masked some issues at the mm-hmm. University of Montana in that first decade that we maybe should, we, we were showing, I mean, um, people here, you know, like, uh, you know, our institutional researchers here, we and we were well aware that the, it was we were going to go over a hump in the 2010 era and the numbers of students available mm-hmm. to recruit from in-state right. was declining. So we saw that coming and knew and talked to Within Montana, all the institutions knew that it was coming, have each tried to design their niche. That's number one. Make sure that you're, you know, and I, I was a, the chancellor of UM Western when our faculty fabulous faculty leadership there, um, most exemplary in the country, I would argue. Uh, in fact, I nominated Professor Rob Thomas for National Professor of the Year for his leadership in that, and he got it. He uh-huh. won it. He's a Regents Professor today because of that leadership. But that to, to develop at least some areas of real niche quality differentiation. Yeah. So there's that. The second thing is to build on alliances and partnerships and to make those work. So this, the second thing that I, the board and I did was to work somewhat controversially on make the transferability so that you could partner with, that you didn't... That a student could go from one institution much, to the other. Much more portable. Fluidly. Okay. Much more fluidly. Common course numbering and yeah, other right, m- right. initiatives like right, that. Okay. Right. So that you could make that more fluid and connect, connecting. Because then some people would say, well, shoot, if you didn't do that, you could maybe knock off one or two of these little places, and their students should go to the big places. Yep, yep. I'm n- not now, never was a believer that it was best to close down education where it's occurring. It's and access best, has always been a key right, part did, of your philosophy. It really has, and and I not that the university's uh, system controls either the opening or closing or anything else of the tribal colleges. But it didn't matter how small they were when they started. Mm-hmm. They have blossomed and they've made a huge difference where they are. So I'll use them as kind of a, um, you know, a, a, a non-controversial in a, in a sense. 
um, tribute to the value of higher education where it is. Build in the partnerships with them, with MSU Billings. And I think that's what a predecessor of mine did in the, ni- the mid-1990s when he um, designed with that board the two sets, the University of Montana campuses, to really make those partnerships more cost savings. In other words, interlock your com- computer systems, your payroll systems, your your library systems. Yep. Do make that more efficient. So I'm a believer in building on niche and efficient partnerships to to keep um, educating people, especially people who um, live close by and need some personal contact. They need a place to be able to walk into and say, hello, uh, I'm, higher help. education scares me. Yeah, I need help. Um, and how do you view the sort of the role of out-of-state and international students in, in this uh, portfolio? I think it's critical. I think every, Because that's one area where you, yeah. you, Montana State has really pushed on the accelerator and Indeed. grown their enrollment with out-of-state students, and, and that has tons of positive financial it's implications had wonderful. for the It has for them. But it also, you know, you can make an argument. It, it can improve the state as well by attracting talent here, assuming it stays. Um, you know, there's a whole host of... I'm a big fan of okay. it. Okay. Huge fan. There are states, Colorado reached a point a generation ago where they didn't realize what a value to them their mm-hmm. non-resident students were. And they, you know, put a kind of an artificial limit because what if my child with really good grades can't get into the University right. of Colorado and, oh, my gosh, look, you've now got 40% non-resident students. And so th- I'm somewhat sympathetic to that. You, there has to be, if you're that attractive, but... Colorado bore some responsibility for that by making, um, by unfunding, by defunding exactly. to was, such an extent yeah. that they motivate. I mean, we all are market people to a degree. We know that incentives matter. And if you give university administrators the incentive to make up for yeah. the loss of uh, without raising tuition, of, at least to your residence students. It's such an interesting question. I mean, it, it sort of... You look at decline in, in public funding for public education in, in a wide variety of states, and you know you you could argue in one sense that these are public institutions, but they're kind of getting more and more private with the reliance on out-of-state student higher tuitions and private donations and to make the institution absolutely. run. Absolutely right. There are plenty of people who say, and President Engstrom used to say it, and his predecessors as well, that we are. State assisted, right? But right. nevertheless, we exist in this wonderful ecosystem, uh, uh, learning ecosystem of the state of Montana itself, mm-hmm. and and as do the others state schools throughout the country. I think it is uh, unfortunate, but understandable. As as I, in a baby boom generation, it's no surprise to me that when I started in 1964, that probably my little share of tuition or my my parents helped was such a small share of the cost of education. But as we age, then our medical costs mm-hmm. and all of the other costs have risen with us and taken away from the colleges and universities. And I will admit, I mean, I recently read uh, former UM president Jim Cook's book on the impoverishment of the American, of, the, of college students. And there are things that um, higher education can and should do to be more economical. Nevertheless, back to your point, I believe that uh, non-resident students, 
is a factor educationally as well as financially. Mm-hmm. And both are important. International students, a campus that is rich yes. with students from other states and other countries is just richer in every sense of that word. Mm-hmm. So as you're kind of looking at you know, your your time as commissioner and in, basically in this series of really hard jobs, mm-hmm. you know, oftentimes compromise is described as something from which people walk, nobody walks away happy. I, I, I want to get a sense for, in these really hard jobs where really hard decisions are made, um, how do you, what does success look like for you in, in those roles? How do you sort of conceptualize it for yourself? A success. Uh, I, how do you know if you're doing a good job? Mm, I have a pretty good internal compass and a lot of years of reading, studying, thinking. I tend to know, once I've listened a lot and learned a lot, that this choice rather than this choice, it's not a sure thing, but it's more likely to be a good decision. I can make it and go on. So, I, and, you know, I just, I just um, I have a lot of trust of myself if I've done my homework. The best decision with the facts available. Exactly. I, I have a lot of trust there. And so, and because a lot of my decisions, we won't know for 5, 10, True. 15, 20 years yeah, if yeah. they were good decisions. So you, you, you better trust to something. And in my case, it's, it's kind of an informed, I'll call it internal compass. Right. And what does it feel, what does success or, or your vision of success kind of feel like? I mean, there's a difference between what you think of it, but, and, but also what does it feel like in the moment? Well, it feels, it feels um, a little uncertain. Yeah. And um, I, I actually would, now that I'm, quick analogy that I'm thinking of is, you know, a hardworking physician will do a surgery and everything will look good and you'll feel good about it. But you know, there's a part of you, you have to be able to live with that. There's a part of you who knows that patient could get an infection tomorrow or yeah. could... She has anything. to do her rehab. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, you know, you. but I feel good. But um, there, there's always, in the jo- kind of jobs I've had, um, I usually feel pretty good about it. And I will kind of go... We did the best we could with what we had. Let's move on. Right. That's how it feels. So I'd like to kind of pivot in our remaining few minutes here and talk about an experience you had earlier in the year on vacation with, with yeah. Al to New Zealand. Yes. There was an article in the paper about this. You were in Christchurch, New Zealand during we during the mosque shooting. Yes. And, um, you know, I don't necessarily want this part of the conversation to get all that political, but a... You know, guns and so forth and gun violence at this scale is, is a challenge we're facing here as a country, is a challenge you witnessed in other countries or another country. Um, yeah, just describe that experience. What was it like to be in another country um, experiencing something that we've kind of grown, unfortunately, somewhat accustomed to here right. in the States? Well, just very quickly, as we drove into Christchurch that right about noon, right? And we yeah. were, it was a Friday afternoon. It was the Ides of March. That's the... Mm-hmm. The, the Latin background, yeah. you know, that I was thought of later, but um, not much later. It was that very afternoon. But I, we're driving in, and I said, this is like Missoula traffic on a Friday afternoon. <laughs> and I said, but here's this park, and we know we deliberately got in our hotel on one side of the park. And by the way, the mosque, one of the mosques is across the street from one side of the park. Okay. So really uh, we, were, we were trying to get to our hotel and sort of puzzled that every time we tried to turn left, our hotel should be three blocks left. Why can't we turn left? Yeah. You know, a, a police car would pull up 
And so I quickly thought of, you know, they've had a water main break or something. Sure, some you know. routine municipal yeah, problem. Exactly. And I thought, what a time, Friday afternoon. Yeah, yeah. But anyway, I figured, I looked at my map and figured out a workaround that made it 10 minutes longer. We got there. And the hotel proprietor, I mean, it was all glass front to the hotel, came out. And, and I thought, well, what a personal greeting. But he unlocked the door to let me in. And he said, we're on lockdown because it looks as if there's a shooting. And here's the difference. For Hal and me, or no, there's a shooter or a shooting. Cause it's on. We took that in complete stride, unlike the two or three others you know, the New mm. Zealand people checking in mm. or an Australian who was checking in. Because to us, that meant, you know, we've had lockdowns on this campus yeah. or as commissioner yeah. on all of our campuses when someone thought they saw a shooter. That, that I just, we, we just said, oh, okay, well, they let us in, of course. Not necessarily but, autopilot, but there's a level yeah, of familiarity. right, to, completely. That just seemed, it wasn't until another half hour that the dimensions of it both to our you know the that his schools were on lockdown and going to stay there that yeah. it looked like you know the equivalent of maybe three four blocks on the other side of the park of our hotel that it was a major shooting with multiple large numbers of casualties so we, 49 people died in the shooting. Yeah, yeah i think it ended yeah. up 50, 50 okay. uh, um so th- it was then we and they were taken aback there was you're just we were taken aback and curious about our fellow citizens uh i mean excuse me tourists from different countries um we all were just appalled and just like humans do everywhere just watched tv for a little bit mm-hmm. and couldn't go out and walk for a time but after a couple hours when we got the okay, we walked around. And Christchurch is a city recovering still from huge 2011 earthquake damage. So it, it's, it's, it was recovering. And the next, we had three days scheduled to be in Christchurch. So we got to walk around and go to watch the memorial service grow yep. a couple blocks away at a church, or I mean a big civic building, from a couple of bouquets to miles and, you know, tons of of pictures and memorials so to watch that grow it did give us a different sense and then we went we were in we went to wellington next and um where the the prime minister the wonderful and eloquent prime minister had Mm -hmm. flown in and and our what surprised us was the extent to which our tour guides two days in a row one was a walking tour we'd taken and one said they gasped on the microphone and they said we've never seen that before and that was armed guards with assault rifles mm-hmm. walking around their their capital building is built like a beehive. Yeah. Walking around they said we've never seen that. And you could tell they felt kind of heartbroken that it has come to this. Yeah. So to see that change, we adjusted to it particularly after I guess 9/11, the increased security everywhere. Yeah, as you're as you're recounting that story, I think of, you know, my first airplane trip after 9/11 just seeing you know, sort of a militaristic presence in our airports. Exactly. It was very, it's um, disconcerting. Yeah, that's a good word to mm-hmm. describe it. It was. It's a little bit scary. It's a little bit sad that mm-hmm. it's come to that. But at the mm-hmm. same time, I'm sure in some ways it's also reassuring to some. Mm-hmm. Um, she had really complex emotions. It was very complex. And, and um, of course, the New Zealanders don't have um, 
the devotion to a Second Amendment that we have. Right. So they they while we were there, you and know, they, they got the case study of Australia and the gun buyback problem. I mean, exactly. a gun buyback program of a few right. years ago. But what was interesting, you know, we we or the Australian who did the shooting had stayed in we think in the same city where we had driven up. Oh, that interesting. In the the previous two days, he was either in a car in front of us or in back of us. There's, in my mind, we drove up the isolated coast mm. there on the kind of the east side. That, um, but it was an Australian, not a New Zealander, who did the shooting. And I was, it's so funny to this day because New Zealand is relentless about um, they will not show his picture or say his name. Yeah. So I couldn't, I was there in the middle of it and following, reading their newspapers, but I could not tell you his name or I cannot dredge up. I can dredge up a picture of the guy who did the Aurora, Colorado theater yep. shooting yeah. 10 years ago or however long it was, but I cannot, you know. So they, they wanted to minimize that part of it. And I think worldwide what everyone wants to do is just maximize our definition of safety. You know, I've read a lot of letters to the editor since then uh, from all over the world mm-hmm. in different newspapers and, and um, right here in Missoula. Our definitions of safety and you know we 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 just it's like being on the commission we have to continue to seek really respectfully of each other common ground on what will make us safer people and still respect our traditions our culture and our laws i think it can be done i always think there's ways well that seems like an appropriate place to bring the conversation to a close sheila um it's great to learn more about your perspective on these sorts of really hard challenges. And it's also great to know that, that you're willing to kind of live this quasi-retired life to, to, <laughs> to sit in these really important seats and do this work. Ah, so thank thanks for coming on the podcast. But more broadly, thanks for doing all the great work you do for, for our state and beyond. Well, Justin, thank you. A quick shout out. For if anyone's listening to this podcast for the first time, it's one of my favorites. I subscribe, as you know, I have for a long time. I share it with everyone. Well, Wonderful work. We Thank are you. very thankful for the, for the support, and it's great to finally have you on. It's long overdue. Thank you. All right. Coming up next week, we have Matt Heyman, former professional cyclist turned portrait photographer. Matt teaches here at the University of Montana, and his photography is currently featured at the Montana Museum of Art and Culture. Learn all about his amazing work next week. Thanks for listening to A New Angle. We really appreciate it. And we're coming to you from Studio 49, a gift from University of Montana alums Michelle and Lauren Hansen. And remember that A New Angle is supported by CED, Consolidated Electrical Distributors. These guys pretty much sell anything electrical you would ever need, but they also hire a ton of our students. If you want to learn more about jobs at CED, visit cedcareers.com. Before we go, I want to thank some important peeps, executive producer Stefan Borsum and interns Aspen Runkle and Max Gibson. Huge thanks to VTO, Jeff Ament, and John Wicks for the tunes. And finally, props to Jeff Meese, our master of all things sound. Finally, if you have any questions, suggestions, comments, insults, whatever, please email me at anewangle at umontana.edu. Help us spread the word. Be sure to use the hashtag anewangle when you do. Thanks a lot, and see you next time.